Volume the Third, Chapter Eleven of Helen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Helen by Maria Edgeworth. Volume the Third, Chapter Eleven. According to the general's advice, Mrs. Pennant did not delay her journey, and Helen left London the next day with her and Miss Clarendon. The last bulletin of Mr. Churchill had been that he was still in great danger, and a few scarce legible lines Helen had received from Cecilia, saying that the general would not allow her to agitate herself by going to take leave of her, that she was glad that Helen was to be out of town till all blew over, and that she was so much distracted by this horrible event, she scarcely knew what she wrote. As they drove out of town, Miss Clarendon, in hopes of turning Helen's thoughts, went on talking. Unless, said she, we could, like Madame de Genlis, promote the postboys into agents of mystery and romance, we have but little chance, I am afraid, of any adventures on our journey to Lancelin, my dear Miss Stanley. She inveighed against the stupid safety, convenience, luxury, and expedition of travelling nowadays all over England, even in Wales, so that one might sleep the whole way from Hyde Park Corner to Lancelin Gate, said she, and have no unconscionably long nap either. No difficulties on the road, nothing to complain of at inns, no enjoying one's dear delight in being angry, no opportunity even of showing one's charming resignation. Dreadfully bad, this for the nervous and bilious, for all the real use and benefit of travelling is done anyway, all too easy for my taste. One might as well be a doll, or a dolt, or a parcel in the coach. Helen would have been glad to have been considered merely as a parcel in the coach. During the whole journey, she took no notice of anything till they came within a few miles of Lancelin. Then, endeavouring to sympathise with her companions, she looked out of the carriage window at the prospect which they admired. But, however charming, Lancelin had not for Helen the chief charm of early, fond, old associations with a happy home. To her it was to be, she doubted not, as happy as kindness could make it, but still it was new, and in that thought, that feeling, there was something inexpressibly melancholy, and the contrast, at this moment, between her sensations and those of her companions, made the pain the more poignant. They perceived this and were silent. Helen was grateful for this consideration for her, but she could not bear to be a constraint upon them. Therefore she now exerted herself, sat forward, admired and talked when she was scarcely able to speak. By the time they came to Lancelin Gate, however, she could say no more. She was obliged to acknowledge that she was not well, and when the carriage at last stopped at the door, 
there was such a throbbing in her temples, and she was altogether so ill, that it was with the greatest difficulty she could, leaning on Miss Clarendon's arm, mount the high steps to the hall door. She could scarcely stand when she reached the top, but, making an effort, she went on, crossed the slippery floor of that great hall, and came to the foot of the black oak staircase, of which the steps were so very low that she thought she could easily go up, but found it impossible, and she was carried directly up to Miss Clarendon's own room, no other having been yet prepared. The rosy Welsh maids looked with pity on the pale stranger. They hurried to and fro, talking Welsh to one another very fast, and Helen felt as if she were in a foreign land, and in a dream. The end of the matter was that she had a low fever which lasted long. It was more dispiriting than dangerous, more tedious than alarming. Her illness continued for many weeks, during which time she was attended most carefully by her two new friends, by Miss Clarendon with the utmost zeal and activity, by Mrs. Pennant with the greatest solicitude and tenderness. Her history for these weeks, indeed for some months afterwards, can be only the diary of an invalid and of a convalescent. Miss Clarendon, meanwhile, received from her brother, punctually, once a week, bulletins of Churchill's health, the surgical details, the fears of the formation of internal abscess, reports of continual exfoliations of bone, were judiciously suppressed, and the laconic general reported only on, much the same, not progressing, cannot be pronounced out of danger. These bulletins were duly repeated to Helen, whenever she was able to hear them, and at last she was considered well enough to read various letters, which had arrived for her during her illness. Several were from Lady Cecilia, but little in them. The first was full only of expressions of regret and self-reproach. In the last, she said, she hoped soon to have a right to claim Helen back again. This underlined passage Helen knew alluded to the promise she had once made, that at the birth of her child all should be told. But words of promise from Cecilia had lost all value, all power to excite even hope, as she said to herself as she read the words, and sighed. One of her letters mentioned what she would have seen in the first newspaper she had opened, that Lady Blanche Forrester was gone with her sister, the Countess de St. Simon, to Paris, to join her brother Lord Beltravers. But Lady Cecilia observed that Helen need not be alarmed by this paragraph, which she was sure was inserted on purpose to plague her. Lady Cecilia seemed to take it for granted that her rejection of Beauclerc was only a ruse d'amour, and went on with her usual hopes, now vague and more vague every letter, that things would end well sometime, somehow or other. Helen only sighed on reading these letters, and quick as she glanced her eye over them, threw them from her on the bed, and Miss Clarendon said, 
Ay, you know her now, I see. Helen made no reply. She was careful not to make any comment which could betray how much or what sort of reason she had to complain of Lady Cecilia. But Miss Clarendon, confident that she had guessed pretty nearly the truth, was satisfied with her own penetration, and then, after seeming to doubt for a few moments, she put another letter into Helen's hand, and with one of those looks of tender interest which sometimes softened her countenance, she left the room. This letter was from Beauclerc. It appeared to have been written immediately after he had received Helen's letter, and was as follows. Not write to you, my dearest Helen. Renounce my claim to your hand. Submit to be rejected by you, my affianced bride. No, never, never. Doubt, suspicion, suspicion of you. You, angel as you are, you who have devoted, sacrificed yourself to others. No, Helen, my admiration, my love, my trust in you are greater than they ever were. And do I dare to say these words to you? I, who am perhaps a murderer, I ought to imitate your generosity. I ought not to offer you a hand stained with blood. I ought at least to leave you free till I know when I may return from banishment. I have written this at the very first instant I have been able to command during my hurried journey. And as you know something of what led to this unhappy business, you shall in my next letter hear the whole. Till then, adieu, Granville Beauclerc. The next day, when she thought Helen sufficiently recovered from the agitation of reading Beauclerc's letter, Aunt Pennant produced one letter more, which she had kept for the last, because she hoped it would give pleasure to her patient. Helen sat up in her bed eagerly and stretched out her hand. The letter was directed by General Clarendon, but that was only the outer cover. They knew, for he had mentioned in his last despatch to his sister, that the letter enclosed for Miss Stanley was from Lady Davenant. Helen tore off the cover, but the instant she saw the inner direction, she sank back, turned, and hid her face on the pillow. It was directed to Mrs. Granville Beauclerc. Lady Davenant had unfortunately taken it for granted that nothing could have prevented the marriage. Aunt Pennant blamed herself for not having foreseen and prevented this accident, which she saw distressed poor Helen so much. But Miss Clarendon wondered that she was so shocked, and supposed she would get over it in a few minutes, or else she must be very weak. There was nothing that tended to raise her spirits much in the letter itself, to make amends for the shock the direction had given. It contained but a few lines in Lady Davenant's own handwriting, and a postscript from Lord Davenant. She wrote only to announce their safe arrival at Petersburg, as she was obliged to send off her letter before she had received any despatches from England, and she concluded with, I am sure the first will bring me the joyful news of Beauclerc's happiness and yours, my dear child. Lord Davenant's postscript 
added that in truth lady davenant much needed such a cordial for that her health had suffered even more than he had feared it would he repented that he had allowed her to accompany him to such a rigorous climate all that could be said to allay the apprehensions this postscript might excite was of course said in the best way by aunt pennant but it was plain that helen did not recover during the whole of this day from the shock she had felt from that foolish direction as miss clarendon said she could not be prevailed upon to rise this day though miss clarendon after feeling her pulse had declared that she was very well able to get up it was very bad for her to remain in bed this was true no doubt and miss clarendon remarked to her aunt that she was surprised to find miss stanley so weak her aunt replied that it was not surprising that she should be rather weak at present after such a long illness weakness of body and mind need not go together said miss clarendon need not perhaps said her aunt but they are apt to do so it is to be hoped the weakness of mind will go with the weakness of body and soon said miss clarendon we must do what we can to strengthen and fatten her poor thing said mrs pennant fatten the body rather easier than to strengthen the mind strength of mind cannot be thrown in as you would throw in the bark or the chicken broth only have patience with her said mrs pennant and you will find that she will have strength of mind enough when she gets quite well only have patience during helen's illness miss clarendon had been patient but now that she was pronounced convalescent she became eager to see her quite well in time of need miss clarendon had been not only the most active and zealous but a most gentle and doubt it who may soft-stepping soft-voiced nurse but now when dr tudor had assured them that all fever was gone and agreed with her that the patient would soon be well if she would only think so miss clarendon deemed it high time to use something more than her milder influence to become if not a rugged at least a stern nurse and she brought out some of her rigid lore i intend that you should get up in seasonable time to-day helen said she as she entered the room do you said helen in a languid voice i do said miss clarendon and i hope you do not intend to do as you did yesterday to lie in bed all day helen turned sighed and mrs pennant said yesterday is over my dear esther no use in talking of yesterday only to secure our doing better to-day ma'am replied miss clarendon with prompt ability helen was all submission and she got up and that was well miss clarendon went in quest of arrowroot judiciously and aunt pennant stayed and nourished her patient meanwhile with the fostering dew of praise and let her dress as slowly and move as languidly as she liked the miss clarendon had admonished her not to dawdle as soon as she was dressed 
Helen went to the window and threw up the sash for the first time to enjoy the fresh air and to see the prospect which she was told was beautiful. And she saw that it was beautiful, and though it was still winter, she felt that the air was balmy and the sun shone bright and the grass began to be green for spring approached but how different to her from the springtime of former years nature the same but all within herself how changed and all which used to please and to seem to her most cheerful now came over her spirits with a sense of sadness she felt as if all the love of life was gone tears filled her eyes large tears rolled slowly down as she stood fixed seeming to gaze from the window at she knew not what aunt pennant unperceived stood beside her and let the tears flow unnoticed they will do her good they are a great relief sometimes miss clarendon returned and the tears were dried but the gaze remained as miss clarendon saw it and gave a reproachful look at her aunt as much to say why did you let her cry and her aunt's look in reply was i could not help it my dear eat your arrowroot was all that transpired to helen and she tried to eat but could not and Miss Clarendon was not well pleased, for the arrowroot was good, and she had made it. She felt Miss Stanley's pulse, and said that it was as good a pulse as could be, only low and a little fluttered. Do not flutter it any more than, Esther, my dear, said Mrs. Pennant. What am I doing or saying, ma'am? that should flutter anybody that has common sense. Some people don't like to have their pulse felt, said Aunt Pennant. Those people have not common sense, replied the niece. I believe I have not common sense, said Helen. Sense you have. Resolution is what you want, Helen, I tell you. I know, said Helen. Too true true but not too true nothing can be too true true said helen with languid submission helen was not in a condition to chop logic or ever much inclined to it now less than ever and least of all with miss clarendon so able as she was there is something very provoking sometimes in perfect submission because it is unanswerable but the languor, not the submission, afforded some cause for further remark and remonstrance. Helen, you are dreadfully languid today. Sadly, said Helen, if you could have eaten more arrowroot before it grew cold, you would have been better. But if she could not, my dear Esther, said Aunt Pennant, could not, ma'am, as if people could not eat if they pleased. But if people have no appetite, my dear, I am afraid eating will not do much good. I am afraid, my dear aunt, you will not do Miss Stanley much good, said Miss Clarendon, shaking her head. You will only spoil her. 
I am quite spoiled, I believe, said Helen. You must unspoil me, Esther. Not so very easy, said Esther, but I shall try, for I am a sincere friend. I am sure of it, said Helen. Then what more could be said? Nothing at that time. Helen's look was so sincerely grateful, and gentle as a lamb, as Aunt Pennant observed, and Esther was not a wolf, quite, at heart, not at all. Miss Clarendon presently remarked that Miss Stanley really did not seem glad to be better, glad to get well. Helen acknowledged that instead of being glad, she was rather sorry. If it had pleased heaven, I should have been glad to die. Nonsense about dying, and worse than nonsense, cried Miss Clarendon, when you see that it did not please heaven that you should die. I am content to live, said Helen. Content? To be sure you are, said Miss Clarendon. Is this your thankfulness to Providence? I am resigned. I am thankful. I will try to be more so, but cannot be glad. General Clarendon's bulletins continued with little variation for some time. They were always to his sister. He never mentioned Beauclerc, but confined himself to the few lines or words necessary to give his promised regular accounts of Mr. Churchill's state, the sum of which continued to be for a length of time, much the same, not in immediate danger, cannot be pronounced out of danger. Not very consolatory, Helen felt, but while there is life, there is hope, as Aunt Pennant observed. Yes, and fear, said Helen, and her hopes and fears on this subject alternated with fatiguing reiteration, and with a total incapacity of forming any judgment. Beauclerc's letter of explanation arrived, and other letters came from him from time to time, which, as they were only repetitions of hopes and fears as to Churchill's recovery, and of uncertainty as to what might be his own future fate, only increased Helen's misery, and as even their expressions of devoted attachment could not alter her own determination, while she felt how cruel her continued silence must appear, they only agitated without relieving her mind. Mrs. Pennant sympathized with and soothed her, and knew how to soothe, and how to raise, and to sustain a mind in sorrow, suffering under disappointed affection, and sunk almost to despondency. For Aunt Pennant, besides her softness of manner, and her quick intelligent sympathy, had power of consolation of a higher sort, beyond any which this world can give. She was very religious, of a cheerfully religious turn of mind, of that truly Christian spirit which hopeth all things. When she was a child, somebody asked her if she was bred up in the fear of the Lord. She said no, but in the love of God. And so she was, in that love which casteth out fear. And now the mildness of her piety, and the whole tone and manner of her speaking and thinking, reminded Helen of that good dear uncle, 
by whom she had been educated. She listened with affectionate reverence, and she truly and simply said, You do me good. I think you have done me a great deal of good, and you shall see it. And she did see it afterwards, and Miss Clarendon thought it was her doing, and so her aunt let it pass, and was only glad the good was done. The first day Helen went down to the drawing-room, she found there a man who looked, as she thought at first glance, like a tradesman, some person, she supposed, come on business, standing waiting for Miss Clarendon or Mrs. Pennant. She scarcely looked at him, but passed on to the sofa, beside which was a little table set for her, and on it a beautiful work-box, which she began to examine and admire. "'Not nigh so handsome as I could have wished it, then, for you, Miss Helen. Ask pardon, Miss Stanley.' Helen looked up, surprised at hearing herself addressed by one whom she had thought a stranger. But yet she knew the voice, and a reminiscence came across her mind of having seen him somewhere before. "'Old David Price, ma'am. Maybe you forgot him, you being a child at that time, but since you grew up you have been the saving of me and many more.' Stepping quite close to her, he whispered that he had been paid under her goodness's order by Mr. James along with the other creditors that had been left. Helen by this time recollected who the poor Welshman was, an upholsterer and cabinet-maker, who had been years before employed at the deanery. Never having been paid at the time, a very considerable debt had accumulated, and having neither note nor bond, Price said that he had despaired of ever obtaining the amount of his earnings. He had, however, since the dean's death, been paid in full, and had been able to retire to his native village, which happened to be near Lancelin, and most grateful he was, and as soon as he perceived that he was recognized, his gratitude became better able to express itself. Not well, however, could it make its way out for some time, between crying and laughing, and between two languages, he was at first scarcely intelligible. Whenever much moved, David Price had recourse to his native Welsh, in which he was eloquent, and Mrs. Pennant, on whom, knowing that she understood him, his eyes turned, was good enough to interpret for him and when once fairly set a-going, there was danger that poor David's garrulous gratitude should flow forever. But it was all honest, not a word of flattery, and his old face was in a glow and radiant with feeling, and the joy of telling Miss Helen all, how, and about it, particularly concerning the last day when Mr. James paid him, and them, and all of them, that was the day Miss Stanley ought to have seen. Pity she could not have witnessed it. It would have done her good to the latest hour of her life. Pity she should never see the faces of many, some poorer they might have been than himself, many richer, that would have been ruined for ever but for her. For his own part, he reckoned himself 
one of the happiest of them all, in being allowed to see her face to face. And he hoped, as soon as she was able to get out so far, but it was not so far, she would come to see how comfortable he was in his own house. It ended at last in his giving a shove to the workbox on the table, which, though nothing worth otherwise, he knew she could not mislike, on account it was made out of all the samples of wood the dean, her uncle, had given to him in former times. Notwithstanding the immoderate length of his speeches, and the impossibility he seemed to find of ending his visit, Helen was not much tired, and when she was able to walk so far, Mrs. Pennant took her to see David Price, and in a most comfortable house she found him, and every one in that house, down to the youngest child, gathered round her by degrees, some more, some less shy, but all with gratitude beaming and smiling in their faces. It was delightful to Helen, for there is no human heart so engrossed by sorrow, so overwhelmed by disappointment, so closed against hope of happiness, that will not open to the touch of gratitude. End of Volume the Third, Chapter Eleven.